Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. We today have uh, got no loser with me as a chair, and we've got our own Steve Fung who's going to be uh, talking to us about internet finance in China. Steve, as you all know, is a senior research fellow with us at Griffith Asia Institute, and more importantly, ALC Future Fellow, uh, one of a number of ALC Future Fellows that we have, which is a good thing to be able to say. For those of you who know uh, Steve's work probably know that he's, he's an international political economist, uh, works on also Chinese politics and domestic political economy as well, published widely, and he's got a book with Harvard that he published a, a couple of years ago on the rise of the People's Bank of China along with uh, Stephen Bell over on the queue. So it was a good cross-institutional collaboration, the sort of thing that we should be promoting. I am not going to speak anymore. And over to you. Hey, thanks, Yin. First of all, just to let you know, uh, Lo and I will continue to convene this year's research seminar here at GI. We also have an exciting lineup of, of uh, speakers for this year. So come along every week and enjoy the launch, uh, enjoy the talk and discussion. After all, this, uh, I think this is an important part of our academic life. And also, we have some brochures here from the Tourism Confucius Institute. Uh, they are providing a range of Chinese-related courses, so just some uh, promotion here. Anyone interested, just come along and grab some. So, uh, yeah, it's an order to me to kickstart this year's research seminar series. My topic today is on Internet finance, which I understand not familiar to many. Uh, neither to me when I first came across this issue when I co-authored a book manuscript on banking reform in China after the GFC. I used the Internet finance as a small case study to illustrate how shadow banking was received in China during the years. But my assessment back at that time was that this is, this is something promising, but, but in terms of market scale, it's really small and it operates largely in the periphery of the financial system. But in a little over two to three years, this thing has become so big and huge that it compels me to run a separate paper on it. Indeed, the internet-related economy in China is now rapidly entrenched in everyday life of Chinese people. We can't imagine here in Australia how interconnectedness of Chinese cities are now becoming. Just with your mobile phone, you have a full range of everyday services, from online shopping to ordering takeaways, to hailing taxis, to share riding bicycles, to opening uh, bank accounts, to manage your cash and investment, etc., etc. If you want to buy something on the street, if you forgot your wallet, doesn't matter. You just use your mobile phone, you scan a two-dimensional code, and the transfer of money is done. Uh, The money is transferred from your online account to that of the vendor. So that means China has skipped the whole credit card phase and leaped directly into the era of digital payment. Nowadays, the first and third richest person in China, their business are directly related to the internet economy. Jack Ma is the founder of e-commerce group Alibaba. And Mr. Wang Wei, his uh, company of courier services just got listed in Chinese stock market. And the main business uh, of this company is to provide logistics service for all online purchases. Last year, about a quarter of venture capital in, in the world flew to China. 
and 80% of which went to internet-related startups. According to the latest uh, estimate by Morgan Stanley, by next year, by 2018, online transactions in China will exceed the combined total for the rest of the world. So for many observers, it's safe to argue that China, alongside with the US, are becoming the vanguard of the new digital economy. And internet finance is important not because it provides a range of new services online, but more importantly, it provides the financial infrastructure for all these online activities. So my talk today is to first give you a brief introduction of internet finance and its impact on the wider financial system. But I'm more interested in how this digital direction means what's different in China, particularly in relation to China's political economy. And then I will talk about some empirical and theoretical implications of this case study. So what is internet finance? This is a phrase actually coined by a veteran Chinese central banker. The closest phrase I can find in the West is finance technology or fintech. It refers to all the financial technologies products and services that originated from and delivered through the internet. I categorize all these uh, services into four loose categories. The first is the payment and settlement platforms. The ones we are familiar with is PayPal. The, the largest online payment provider is Alipay, which is uh, the payment platform, uh, the payment arm of the e-commerce company Alibaba. By the end of last year, the active membership of that company exceeds 500 million, compared with just 200 million by PayPal, which is the major provider in the rest of the world. So you get ideas. And the second is investment platforms. Mainly, uh, these are in the form of online wealth management products, or actually these are the online money market funds. What they do is to mobilize retail investment into funds, and then they invest in the money market products. Now, by doing this, they are able to provide high returns to their customers, to the retail investors. The third part is uh, the lending platforms, majorly in the form of peer-to-peer -peer lending, or P2P. What it does is to have borrowers and lenders meet directly online, cutting out the traditional intermediaries, like, particularly like the banks. By the end of last year, this has been, become a business of almost uh, a trillion yuan, uh, about over 100 billion US dollars in China. So it's rapidly growing. The last but not least uh, is banking platforms in the form first uh, in direct banking. These are the copies, of, the online copies of the offline traditional banking um, <coughs> operations. These are set up by the banks online. Uh, the second kind of online banking is web-only banks. These are the banks set up by internet companies, not the traditional banks. All the operations are conducted online, including the crucial part of opening bank accounts using the latest uh, technology in biometrics. So it's, uh, I think this, the, this should be the future of finance. So the reasons behind the popularity of internet finance is not hard to gauge, right? It's, it's convenient, uh, it's flexible, especially when coupled with the increasing popularity of mobile phones. It's popular also because um, it provides high returns for retail 
uh, investors, everyday you know, household savers. And also it provides microloans to small and medium-sized enterprises, which largely have been shut out from the traditional banking system, uh, which I will touch up later. And also for the industry itself, uh, it is a more convenient, more efficient way to do business. Uh, it not only cut out the traditional operational cost when it comes to a brick mortar branches, but more importantly, by, a, by their ability to gather data and to analyze them into big data, uh, it helps these online lenders to more properly pricing their loans, to identify the risks to price their loans. So that represents the future of banking, more efficient way to do banking. So this is what I mean by high returns right, of these online funds. It's a very important part of internet finance. This line, green line here, is the interest rate of demand deposit. High up, we got this red line, which is the interest rate for one-year deposit rate. And above that, we got this highly fluctuating one. It's not recognizable. This one is the interest rate on China's money market. It's higher than the, the bank's one-year rate, but uh, it's high. But what I want to say is that these two lines here, um, brown and orange one here, these two are the interest rate of the two major online funds. Now, they are higher than money market interest rate, higher than one-term, one-year one term, uh, one term deposit, and also, of course, even higher than the demand deposit. What I mean is these online funds, they actually, they are for savers, they are demand deposit because you can withdraw your principal and investment at any, any time within the same day. You can get your principal and interest back. So it's kind of demand deposit, but actually you are getting returns that's higher than even one-year deposit, one-year term deposit. That's why it's popularity. That's the attractiveness of these online funds. Now, there are new startups emerging every day, and these companies going bust every day. This highly dynamic, highly fluid market. But in the finance section, we increasingly see a concentration of financial services providers around the three major groups, around major three internet companies. Each have their original core business. Like Alibaba, their core business is e-commerce. Tencent is the social media. Baidu is search engine. But increasingly, over time, they branch into different sections of financial services. Um, they set up these um, different arms in each and every subsectors of the business. So that's the, the major you know, market structure. That is a quick link, this annual growth in mobile payments, online mobile payments. Especially for mobile, the blue, uh, the, the yellow columns are for the mobile payments. They really is took off since uh, the year 2013. And this is the P2P lending in China. It exploded after 2012. So the, the rapid development of this online business is a normal story. It created disruption right, to the established business. 
I see two uh, areas that it poses threat or disruption to the existing business. One is in the area of payment settlement. Traditionally, the banks can charge like 1% to 2% of processing fees, and they have half of these processing fees with the processing companies like Visa or Master. But for any transactions done online using these online payment providers, the banks can only get less than 10% of the processing fee. So this online payment system really eating into the profit margins of the banks. And the second area is that um, uh, the flourishing of these online funds really have an impact of diverting deposit away from the banks to these online fund products. Now this is what I see as uh, an increasing threat. This is the deposit at the banks. Over time, see the, um, the green line uh, is the aggregate amount of the total deposit at the banks. Over time, it's still um, rising. But when we look at the dotted lines, they are the year-on-year -year growth of bank deposit. And since late 2012, 2013, the growth rate has been in steadily decline. And a large part of it was due to the sudden popularity of these online funds because they compete for the same pool of deposit. Now, so far, business disruption of these technologies are mainly framed by the literature from the notion of disruptive innovation, which is called by Harvard uh, business professor Christensen back in 97 in his book, which refers to uh, technologies whose application significantly affects uh, the competitive patterns or uh, business models of the existing market. What happens is uh, cheaper, simpler, or sometimes unexpected products and services, they bring down the big names uh, in the business by changing the game. Right? What I can see, you know, the examples of this disruptive innovation has been like when the transistor radios replaced the traditional big box furniture-like radio, uh, when the electronic calculators replaced the paper and pencil, when the um, LCD TVs replaced the traditional CRT TVs. But these, these kind of notion of disruption is mainly runs with the inherent economic and market logic that New technology brings down the cost, increase the efficiency uh, of the products, it increases the, the scale of uh, economy, uh, it brings better quality, more features of products. So in a market competition, that obviously over time, this uh, new technology, new product services will replace the old ones. So it's very much uh, economic and market logic. However, I would argue that in China's context, we have to understand disruption from a more profound way, how uh, this disruption happened uh, within China's context of state capitalism. Is the economy stupid? But in China, it's the political economy that really matters. Now by state capitalism, I mean a system in which the state taking the commanding heights. It, the state controls some of the key resources like land, uh, like large scale of state-owned enterprises and banks. 
and the state plays a very important role in the national economy. And financially, such system is supported by a system of capital control. It's called financial repression. It's made possible by the state domination of the banks. It's made possible by a system of capital control in which without approval, all funds are kept within the border. So you have to park your money somewhere within the border. And most often than not, you park in the banks. But when you park your money into the banks, the interest rate for deposit are set by the government at an artificially low levels than market levels. So the losers are the household savers. In effect, this kind of taxation on household savers. And also the cheap credits because of the low interest rate on deposit, that cheap credits are directed from state banks to mainly the state-owned enterprises. So the beneficiaries of this are, of course, the state sector and also the banks because they have a guaranteed uh, margin. They can, they can just leave on the interest margin set by the government, which normally about 3%. This is a very healthy margin compared with international standard. Uh, they don't have any incentive for reform. They, they just they become lazy. So over time, this has created a growth model in China, which is largely driven by investment, particularly public investment. And after the GFC in 2008, because of the fiscal and monetary stimulus, this system more involved into one that is increasingly driven by debt. Now, there's a lot of studies, research recently about the alarming level of debt in China compared with China's GDP. So much so that um, it becomes a political consensus that, according to Wen Jiabao, uh, the former Chinese premier, the Chinese economy is increasingly, quote, unbalanced, unstable, uncoordinated, and unsustainable. It's unbalanced between consumption and investment. It's unbalanced between the eastern coastal areas and inland areas. And it's unbalanced between rural and urban areas. So apparently it's unsustainable. And this disruption of the new economy to the old model of business for the leadership and elements of liberal reformers within the Chinese system, this is the God-given. This is a good opportunity to break the impasse of reform. So for them, this, this is not a disruptor. This, internet finance is a facilitator. It facilitates um, the economic transition from investment to more consumption and the service-driven economy. And it also facilitated the entrepreneurship uh, through the encouragement of startups. It fosters creativity and innovation, which China really needs to climb up the, uh, the value chain. And more directly, that fosters financial deregulation in China. These online funds, by providing high returns, they're forcing the banks to lift up the game, to provide comparable products with comparable returns to investors. I got a quote here from uh, Madame Ma Weihua. Uh, she used to be the president of the China Merchants Bank. Uh, this uh, a quote of her. Why is all this money going into Yuebao 
U-Bow is online fund, make the largest online funds. Because banks fail to pay what savers did, uh, deserve, you can't fool them. U-Bow is forcing banks to face up to the challenges of interest rate deregulation. So that's, you know, the banks themselves are facing the, uh, feeling the steam. And also because by directing more microloans to uh, small and medium enterprises, which is the most dynamic sector of the Chinese economy, which most dynamic, they create most uh, employment. Uh, this most, uh, makes allocation of financial resources more efficient. So it's, uh, for Chinese policymakers, it's a God-given opportunity. So this support or endorsement is reflected in China's national strategy that aims to integrate between traditional manufacturing and the online, the new economy, uh, which is called the Internet Plus strategy. According to the official document, the strategy aims to integrate mobile internet, cloud computing, big data and the internet of things with modern manufacturing to encourage the healthy development of e-commerce, industrial networks and internet banking and to get internet-based companies to increase their presence in the international market. Now this is a photo of the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang. He was attending an opening ceremony of a web-only bank. This was the bank issuing his first loan. The man holding the mobile phone was their first customer. He's the truck driver. He got a loan from the bank all online for less than 2,000 US dollars. According to the Premier, internet-based banking is a significant step in China's financial reform. Internet banking will lower costs for and deliver practical benefits to small clients while forcing traditional financial institutions to accelerate reforms. So internet finance are framed as reforms, impetus for reforms, not as a disruption. So because of the endorsement from the top and also um, with the liberal agenda for liberalization, the government has largely taken a light-touch approach when it comes to regulation. So literally no regulation in the early stage. Everyone can jump in. There's no entry barriers, no regulation. As a result, these platforms are quickly becoming the online Wild West, especially in the lending uh, section, in the P2P section. Many say that the whole market is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, this is a rampant malpractice and mismanagement in which many platforms just disappear overnight with the investors' money. That culminates into major scandals erupted since early last year, especially in the case of Izubao. Uh, this, this is a big P2P platform. When the scandal erupted, it, it evolved over one million investors of about 8 billion US dollar uh, funds. And also, uh, these platforms are meant to provide microloans to small and uh, medium-sized enterprises or to the private borrowers. But over time, they started to lending money to retail investors in the stock market. So these retail investors, they borrow money online and they, they speculated on the stock market. Between 2014 and 2015, 
this helped to prop up the stock market by increasing the, the leverage. But when the government stepped in to rein the high leverage, the stock market started to crash in June, in big time. So P2P are, were taken as the major blame for this big volatile in other parts of the financial system. So all this um, lead to increasing worries uh, on the part of the policymakers. The facilitator increasingly see as troublemaker as it poses risks. It creates risks uh, to social and political stability. And then we see um, various <coughs> regulatory agents step in and they drafted all these very stringent regulatory matters against within the sector. Some of them are the, arguably the most stringent ones according to the international standard. I won't go into the detail. So that's the trajectory so far in this sector. What is this means of this case study? I think first, the rise of internet finance, I argue, has been shaped by state capitalism. It's not just a business innovation. It's shaped by state capitalism under the state sanction. The trajectory of the sector from being supported, tested support from government, to being regulated by some of the harshest measures, I think that reflects the dilemma of state capitalism. On one hand, it needs the sector to boost consumption, to stimulate uh, the service sector, but at the same time, it got its bottom lines. First, is that this sector, online finance, cannot challenge banking system in a fundamental way. Uh, in other words, it has to be a complementary role, not on the major stage. The banks can't be threatened fundamentally. And the second is that the development of this, of this sector cannot create systemic risks that spill over in the social and political sphere. So that makes the regulation of the sector oscillate between two extremes, between two lenient when the risks started to accumulate, to one extreme that is too stringent, too harsh, that could choke the development of this sector. So that's the dilemma of the regulation. That created a lot of uncertainties for this sector. Theoretically, I think this case highlights the role of agency in creating and maintaining momentum of reform in China. And also it highlights the role of informal institutions and its mutually shaping interaction between informal institutions and formal institutions in delivering institutional changes in China. What I mean is the literature of historical institutionalism largely treat institutions, particularly informal institutions, as constraining. Right? Um, but informal institutions, I argue, that they, at the same time they are empowering. Or they, sometimes they are used by agents to bypass or work around existing arrangements. This is what Kelly's High called the adaptive 
informal institutional change when she analyzed the private banking in China. This flexibility and incrementalism offered by the state enabled the growth of informal markets, in this case, the online finance, under the shadow of this hierarchy. And over time, these developments in the informal sector will push for changes in the formal sector. So that is the dynamics used time and again by agents. Back in the 80s, when reform was initiated, Barry Norton used the analogy growing out of plan. When there's political resistance in the plan sector, the reformers will say, okay, we don't challenge the, plan, the planning sector head on. We create a private sector which grows alongside with the plan sector. And over time, this new sector will replace, will erode to the plan. And this another example of agents using this tactic to elicit changes in the formal sector. That's conclude my presentation, and I welcome questions. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.